Welcome back to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla and this episode is the second in my bite-sized series where I discuss a specific topic in a bite-sized chunk. This episode is part two of Eating Disorders which follows on from episode seven. Again, just a bit of a disclaimer, if you're currently in active recovery from disordered eating or an eating disorder, this may not be the right time for you to listen to this episode. So best to skip this one and you're always welcome to come back and listen when the time is right for you. In this episode today, I will discuss some of the other eating disorders, including bulimia nervosa, diabulimia, binge eating disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, and other specified feeding or eating disorders. The purpose of these episodes around disordered eating is to open up conversations and remove the stigma that still unfortunately exists around mental health, especially with eating disorders. I'm going to start with binge eating disorder, as I would say this is one of the most common eating disorders in the general public and is relatively common among many of the clients I work with, hence why I think it's important to raise awareness and talk about it. Binge eating is characterized by regular episodes of binging or extreme overeating. And the binging occurs when basically a person eats a really large amount of food in a short period of time and is usually undertaken with a feeling of complete loss of control. So the actual diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder, you have to eat in quite a discrete period of time. So we're talking like within a two hour window an amount of food that would be much larger than what most people would eat in a similar time period in similar circumstances. The lack of control during the episode, which um, I've mentioned. Feeling really distressed about it and usually really emotional, guilty, ashamed, depressed. Um, It's not associated with the compensatory behaviours like purging, which I'll mention with bulimia nervosa, Uh, and generally three or more of the following. So eating more rapidly than normal, eating until you're uncomfortably full, uh, eating even when you're not physically hungry, eating alone because you're really embarrassed about how much you're eating and feeling disgusted with how much you've eaten and really guilty and the vicious cycle can continue. And generally um, these binge episodes need to occur about once a week or more for a period of three months for it to compete I guess to meet the criteria Um, but I would say people I work with can have like binge eating to a degree where it may not be like diagnosed but it certainly falls within the spectrum of disordered eating Um, so yeah that's why I think it's a goodie to talk about so Um, what are some of the signs and symptoms of binge eating disorder? So disappearance of really large amounts of food, uh, empty wrappers and containers in the bin, which may not be accounted for in like maybe joint meals. They may be really uncomfortable eating around other people or have like a real fear of eating in public or being judged for what they're eating. They may hoard food or hide food, spend a lot of money on food. Um, They'll have really low self-esteem poor body image generally they may have really weird food rules um, have a real diet mindset they may yo-yo diet a lot they may have weight fluctuations um, and have all of these behavioral symptoms but they do not compensate like bulimia some of the physical signs and symptoms could be 
lots of fluctuations in their weight up and down. Um, they may have some gastrointestinal upsets. Um, it could be due to really erratic eating patterns, like eating a lot and then not eating at all. Um, so there may be constipation. They may have um, reflux. And they may have difficulty concentrating due to the significant mood changes and feeling really depressed um, and ashamed and, yeah, becoming a bit withdrawn as well. With binge eating disorder, some of the health consequences are often related <clears throat> to the excessive food consumed or possibly the weight fluctuations or, or weight gain. The mental consequence can also be really significant and you know, it can lead to someone becoming really withdrawn, ashamed, depressed. Um, and there can also be a lot of weight stigma if the individual is in a larger body, which can make them actually much, much less likely to seek healthcare, especially if they've had a negative experience in the healthcare system with weight bias. Uh, I, hear, I hear, you know, from so many clients who have struggled with their weight, who, who may be in a larger body, that a med medical professional has told them, you know, they were overweight or obese and they needed to lose weight. And honestly, people generally don't need to be told this. They're quite aware and making those kind of comments is so much more harmful than it is helpful. So if you're a health professional, please think before um, putting a label on someone's weight. The good news with binge eating disorder is it is treatable with sufficient help. So one of the most common treatments is called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and this has been shown to be one of the most effective, effective treatments for binge eating. Certain medications can also be really valuable and this is to do with I guess some of the mood disorders that can be a result of or exacerbate binge eating disorder. So if someone's like really depressed and anxious, they may be put on antidepressants such as fluoxetine and um, these would be used alongside obviously psychological input. And of course, working alongside a dietitian. So one of the biggest strategies I work on with clients struggling with binge eating is to have regular meals and avoid restriction. One of the key drivers to binge eating is restriction and deprivation of food. And I would go as far as saying most people with binge eating disorder initially started with just a diet. And I say just a diet because diets and diet culture have caused so many problems in our society with disordered eating. And for my clients who may have struggled for quite a while with disordered eating, like simply aiming for three main meals a day can be an immense challenge for them. Like it's a huge step to make. And for anyone who maybe hasn't struggled with disordered eating, you may think that's like crazy, like three meals a day easy, but it's, it can be so hard for someone who's had such an unhealthy relationship with food for like years. So yeah, if you feel like you're struggling, you certainly need to reach out for help um, and help from both, you know, a psychologist and dietitian um, and a doctor where appropriate as well. So now to touch on bulimia nervosa. So commonly just called bulimia, it's another really serious eating disorder and bulimia is somewhat similar to binge eating disorder as it is characterized by secretly binge eating large amounts of food with a loss of control but then a person with bulimia will use compensatory behaviors to get rid of the food in what can be a really dangerous way and that could be through the misuse of medications like 
um, laxatives or diuretics, um, self-induced vomiting or excessive exercise or a combination of all of those things. There's also a subtype I want to mention that only affects people with type 1 diabetes and this is referred to as diabulimia. And this is basically where someone with type 1 diabetes, which if you're not aware, type 1 is an autoimmune condition which requires lifelong management of insulin injections and blood glucose monitoring. So diabulimia is where the person with type 1 diabetes purposely does not take their insulin to lose weight. And we know in type 1 diabetes, you need to inject insulin to survive. So emitting this can be really dangerous. So how does this actually work physiologically? So insulin is a really crucial hormone involved in our metabolism. And it's what allows glucose to get from our bloodstream into the cells and tissues of our body. Basically like a key opening a lock. So if there's no insulin, your blood glucose levels basically get higher and higher and higher. And your kidneys are working overtime, filtering your blood and they're trying to get rid of the excess glucose and they're dumping it in your urine. But your blood glucose levels are still climbing. And what's crazy is although your blood glucose levels are really high, your cells are still starving and your body thinks it's starving. So it goes into the backup system of producing ketones. And in someone with type 1 diabetes, this can lead to a really dangerous state known as diabetic ketoacidosis. And if this is left untreated, it can lead to coma or death. So it's pretty serious. Um, And we know in type 1 diabetes, um, females are twice as likely to struggle with um, eating disorders. Males are also at increased increased risk. Um, And having spent several years working in diabetes, I can certainly see why, you know, young teenagers and young adults who at such a critical time in their development are diagnosed with type 1 and then suddenly there's all this focus on all that eating carbohydrate counting, managing their blood glucose levels, I can totally understand why it can be problematic and eating disorders are more prevalent. To come back to bulimia, um, just to go over, I'll try and keep it um, pretty pretty short, um, some of the changes to behavior. So again, uh, similar to binge eating disorder in terms of like, um, you know, lots of food wrappers going missing or unusual behaviors around food, maybe becoming withdrawn and avoiding eating with other people. All those kind of things can be true of bulimia as well. Um, but I guess the difference would be they may have really unusual bathroom habits around meals. Um, it, there may be signs that they've been misusing like laxatives or diuretics. Uh, they may have really erratic eating schedules, skipping meals. Um, in a shared household, you know, there may be food just disappearing um, or there may be signs that they're like hiding or hoarding a lot of food or spending a lot of money on food. And again, like the other eating disorders, they, you know, generally have quite low, low self-esteem, um, really ashamed of their body, trying to hide their body. Um, yeah. And lastly, you know, really excessive behaviors to try and get rid of the food. So um, whether that's in the form of exercise or um, vomiting as well. Psychological changes, again, similar to some of the other disorders I've talked about. So they'll be really preoccupied with their body and dieting and food. 
uh, it can come alongside other psychiatric illnesses like anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, and they may, you know, change their, you know, their mood could be really variable, um, and they could have really significant emotional changes and mood swings. Physical indicators, again, they can actually have a lot of weight fluctuation as well, like binge eating disorder. Um, so it could go up and down a lot, or they may drastically lose a lot of weight and gain a lot of weight. They can have a really sore throat, um, and this is due to regular vomiting. So that's a bit of a warning sign that's a bit different from the others. And another one is actually their dental health. So this is one actually for dentists to be aware of, is um, someone with, you know, really bad breath, um, chipmunk cheeks, so they can have quite swollen cheeks due to the vomiting and tooth decay are all signs that someone's maybe vomiting regularly, um, which can obviously be pretty, pretty problematic from that aspect of health as well. Uh, all of this and the stress on the body can lead to irregular periods in females, um, really lethargic, tired and um, looking for I guess swollen or red marks on fingers and knuckles as well again due to the vomiting so who's at increased risk of bulimia um, those careers that I've talked about before that have a real focus on leanness or being thin so you know your dancers your gymnasts your models your jockeys your bodybuilders um, sports that are weight categorized all of those types of things can increase the risk people in larger bodies um, and this can be due to um, weight stigma or it can be initiated by yo-yo dieting. As I mentioned, dieting can be the cause of so many eating disorders. Um, it can be actually quite common in people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse uh, or previous trauma or have gone through really significant life events. And it can also coincide alongside other addictions like drugs and alcohol as well, which is a bit different from the rest. Well, kind of. Um, Addictions can be common in most eating disorders, to be fair, um, depending depending on the eating disorder. Um, people with diabetes, as mentioned, so diabulimia, um, low self-esteem, perfectionism, and environmental triggers too. So thinking about the environment the individual grew up in, you know, did their family have a lot of focus on um, being really well behaved, succeeding in school or sport? Um, was the family quite focused on being thin or attractive because um, these can lead to maybe someone feeling really worthless or like they didn't meet the family's high expectations. Um, so there are all other things to consider as well. So treatment of bulimia generally involves a medical team including a psychologist and a dietitian um, and depending on the severity there may be you know temporary inpatient treatment to make sure the individual is medically stable and then cared for in the community or in an outpatient setting. So ARFID, otherwise known as Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, it's one of the newly categorized forms of eating disorder. And a person with ARFID has, has issues eating certain foods, which can ultimately lead to inadequate nu nutritional intake. Um, and it can lead to a dependence on supplements or even tube feeding. It's most common in childhood or infancy, although it can affect adults too. Um, even we've seen in um, some patients like people with autism, um, this can affect because they may be really pedantic about uh, certain food textures or colours. Um, 
And in adults, you know, it can lead to, to weight loss. In children and young people, it can lead them to, you know, not grow as expected or have quite significant impacts on health. So some of the warning signs is trouble eating or digesting specific food types, only eating very small portions, eating really slowly, avoiding particular types of food, textures, colours. They may have really poor appetite. Um, and they actually could just have a fear of eating and that can be due to maybe a previous experience of really severe choking or maybe a food made them really sick and they were vomiting. Like that kind of thing in um, a child or a younger person can certainly have an impact as well. Eating disorders not otherwise specified. So this is actually the proper term is other specified feeding or eating disorders, which is more easily described as OSFED. So eating disorders don't always fall into little neat categories. And as I mentioned in episode seven, people's symptoms can change a lot over time, meaning the classification of the eating disorder can also change. If a person is diagnosed with OSFED, it, it doesn't mean they don't have a disorder or that it's any less serious. For example, like someone could meet the criteria for anorexia nervosa, but continue to have a regular menstrual cycle they may regularly purge without binge eating or they may binge eat but it's really infrequent and if you can remember I mentioned one of the criteria for binge eating is that you have to have a binge episode around once a week for three months for that diagnostic criteria. It's important to remember that you know all eating disorders are serious whether it's anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder or any of the other categories. Um, they all carry physical and psychological risks and they can all be very dangerous if left untreated. In terms of generalized disordered eating, which is like that gray area between a healthy relationship with food and exercise and a full-blown diagnosed eating disorder at the other end of the spectrum, I would say it's unfortunately very common for people to struggle with disordered eating, but it's not okay or nor should it be considered normal. I do frequently see a lot of clients who have very complicated or disordered relationships with food and exercise and what can be dangerous with this is someone's drive to train hard or compete in events could be praised and encouraged by others who don't know maybe the difficulties that the individual's having behind closed doors. As a clinician, I'm always somewhat checking in to ensure that that balance between eating to perform and train hard is acceptable and not stepping over that very fine line into what I would define as obsessive. It can be a really slippery, slippery slope, especially in younger athletes for the odd dietary change to suddenly become a really significant problem. If you're concerned about yourself or someone you know, you're more than welcome to get in contact with me. Sometimes just having someone to talk to can be a step in the right direction. Otherwise, I can refer you on to the relevant health professional, including some excellent psychologists. That's all for today's episode. It was pretty brief, but if you have any questions or would like more detail on anything discussed, feel free to get in touch with me and I'm more than happy to have a chat.